Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Land has been the cause of some of the most vicious feuds and brutal murders in modern Irish history often portrayed as poor tenant farmers against all-powerful landlords, the real stories behind these murders were often more complex. In a society where people developed what was an unhealthy obsession with land, there were all too many willing to kill friends, family and neighbours over it. The sentiments which fuelled these crimes were epitomised in John B. Keane's play and later an Oscar-nominated movie, The Field where the central character, the Bull McCabe, who commits murders over a field, says, It's my field. It's my child. I nursed it. I nourished it. I saw it to its every want. I dug the rocks out of it with my bare hands, and I made a living thing of it. My only want is that green grass, that lovely green grass, and you want to take it away from me, and in the sight of God, I can't let you do that. While the Bull McCabe was a fictional character, that story was based on real-life events. Indeed, every county in Ireland had its own story of a murder over land. This podcast tells one, a feud over a farm outside the East Cork town of Castletown Roach. Taking place in the decades after the famine, this dispute resulted in the deaths of four people. Buried for nearly a century and a half, this story is told for the first time in this two-part podcast. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is A Land to Die For, Part 1. Thanks for all the feedback on the last show about Dublin in 1916. I've received lots of requests for similar episodes and I'm looking into that at the moment. Many of you have also been inquiring when the final episodes in the series Partisans Irish Stories from the Spanish Civil War will be released. The good news is that they are already being written as I speak and the series will return with five more episodes in about three weeks' time. The first of these looks at the story of the Blue Shirts and the Irish Brigade who fought for fascism in the Spanish Civil War. All the research for series like this one on the Castletown Roach murders through to partisans is funded by listeners who support the show at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. The support of these listeners, people just like you, allows me to spend the necessary time in archives unearthing these stories like the one you're about to hear, which has been forgotten since the late 19th century. You can support this work today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com 
forward slash Irish podcast. Finally, I'd like to thank Sarah Buggy for her help with pronunciations in this episode. William Sheehan was condemned to death on December 20th, 1885. The sentence was due to be carried out on the gallows of Cork Jail exactly one month later, leaving him with just 31 days of life. Oddly, however, Sheehan accepted his fate. He did not protest his innocence or beg for clemency. On one last occasion, he met his wife, Marianne, to say farewell. The two were emotional. However, what was said between them is unknown. Surely, Marianne was somewhat reserved with her affections, given what he had done and the ordeal he had put her through. After bidding farewell to his family, Sheen was somewhat listless. He didn't have a friend in the world. He spent what time he could with a priest, counting down the hours, preparing his soul, but he was truly a man with nothing to live for. Journalists reflected that no criminal ever went to the gallows with so little human sympathy as William Sheen, and if there was an argument in favour of the death sentence, it was in this case of the cold-blooded triple murderer. On his final lonely walk to the gallows through the dark corridors of Cork Jail on the early morning of January the 20th, 1886, Sheen could turn over in his head the events that had brought him there one last time. A childhood during the famine, the three murders, his marriage, the eviction, his life in New Zealand, sailing the entire globe, and then Cork Jail. However, he was drawn back to one place time and again. That patch of land, the farm outside Castletown Roach where he had been raised, the society he had grown up in and fostered what was almost an addiction for the very soil itself, an addiction that had led him to kill and be brought to the gallows that now lay ahead of him. In that community, owning land had been paramount. Indeed, human value itself was measured in the amount of acres one owned. While this had inevitably led to tensions in the community, William Sheen had taken this to extremes. What made him different is hard to say, but land and defending the family farm at all costs had been a constant feature in his life since the day he had been born. William Sheen was born on the threshold of history, conceived in one world but delivered into another. While his mother Catherine had fallen pregnant in March 1845, William wasn't born until December when the Great Famine, which transformed Ireland in the first six years of his life, was extending its deathly tentacles around Irish society. That said, the Sheens were not the most vulnerable cohort of Irish people. William's parents, David and Catherine Sheehan, lived in a four-roomed house on the 22-acre farm they rented at Carrigdenan near Castletown Roach. While this was larger than many contemporary farms, their income was also supplemented by the proceeds of a public house the family owned in the nearby village of Rock Mills. That said, the onset of the Great Hunger triggered what was an anxious time for the family. Although there's an absence of records, there are signs William's parents were worried about the future. While Catherine had given birth to children almost every second year since her marriage in 1831, this came to an abrupt halt after the birth of William in 1845. While the Sheehans didn't face imminent starvation, the economic catastrophe the Great Famine unleashed on Irish society posed grave dangers to families like theirs who had once been comfortable. The greatest concern for David and Catherine was eviction. As their incomes fell, many like them fell into rent arrears and eviction loomed. Losing the family farm started a cycle of poverty and destitution that led to emigration if they were lucky or the dreaded workhouse if they were not. The scale of evictions during these years was terrifying. Landlords carried out around 
50,000 evictions involving quarter of a million people during the later years of the Great Hunger, and they were not all the poorest of the poor. Many larger farmers, like the Sheehan's, had also been caught up in this. The strain, fear and anxiety about losing the family farm formed the backdrop to William Sheehan's earliest memories. By 1851, in the first six years of his life, he had seen his community fall apart. The population of the nearby village of Rock Mills, where the family had a pub, had fallen by over 30%, while the neighbouring townland of Lisnagarneen had halved. Ultimately, however, his family survived. They hung on to the family farm, and the arrival of William's baby brother Thomas in 1849 and his sister Hannah the following year indicated the worst had passed. While land and the fear of losing it had been central to his life as he grew up, what became William's obsession was nurtured by the society and community he grew up in. What precise role this community played is impossible to say, but given what lay ahead, it was surely no coincidence that he grew up only fields away from what was one of the most brutal land-related murders Cork had ever seen up to that point. The Sheehan Farm was located outside Castletown Roach at Carrigdenan, a small, tightly-knit community. At the end of the famine, there were over 20 farms covering about 800 acres of land across the area. It was, to all intents and purposes, a backwater, far from the main stage of Irish history. However, it was well known for one event, one of the most notorious land-related murders Cork had ever seen. As William grew up in the 1850s, the story of this murder was undoubtedly something he heard on countless occasions. Indeed, this murder was a relatively recent event. In 1823, a family of three people, a father, Thomas Franks, his wife and their adult son Henry, had all been brutally murdered. Several men had broken into the family home and begun a frenzied, brutal attack. Thomas Franks, the father, was shot at close range with a blunderbuss. His unnamed wife, Mrs Franks, was beaten and strangled, while their son Henry was savagely mauled with a crowbar in a fatal assault. The murders were carried out by neighbours of the Franks, members of a secret society known as the White Boys. This clandestine group carried out acts of vengeance against perceived enemies of the community, and the Franks, a well-off family in the area, had made numerous enemies in land-related disputes. Indeed, the Franks had earned a reputation as landlords indifferent to the suffering of their poor tenants. However, they had also made enemies among the wealthier farmers in the area as well. Henry, the son, who had been killed in the attack, had been due to marry a certain Miss Carney. However, her family were opposed to the match. Miss Carney had recently inherited land and her brother-in-law, Arthur O'Keefe, was said to have resented the fact that Henry Franks was now going to gain control over this through his marriage. Several people, including Arthur O'Keefe, were arrested after the murders leading to sensational court dramas where none other than Daniel O'Connell defended the accused. While Arthur O'Keefe was acquitted, three brothers, widely assumed to have been innocent, were found guilty and hanged. Now precisely what influence or impact this would have had on young William Sheehan as he grew up is impossible to know, but the community in Carrigdenan he grew up in was steeped in this murderous history. This, along with the famine, would combine to produce deadly results in the coming years. In the decades following the famine, the Sheehan family prospered. The farm had been 22 acres in 1851, but tripled in size over the following two decades. However, while the famine may have transformed Irish society, tension around land remained. 
If anything, the tens of thousands of evictions only intensified it. These not only dominated relations between the Sheehans and their landlords, but it infiltrated the family itself. William was raised in a house where these tensions over land, if not spoken about openly, were surely constantly present. They were inescapable and divided the family amongst itself. While the Sheehans appeared to do well, the harsh reality was that one of the children, most likely the eldest son, would be the only one to inherit the family farm. The rest, including William, the seventh child, despite being raised in a society obsessed with land, would have to seek a future elsewhere. While this dynamic led to tensions between siblings, land also created fraught relations between ageing parents and their children. In many cases, the eldest son faced a dilemma. It was common to wait to get possession of the family farm before marriage. This meant that the eldest son, to an extent, needed his parents to die or at least sign over the farm before he could get on with his life. And on the other side of this, parents were sometimes only 15 to 20 years older than their eldest son and they were reticent to sign away control over the source of family income while they were still relatively young. Indeed, it was tension like this between older sons and their parents that worked to William Sheen's advantage. After his father died, the lease on the family farm passed into his mother's name. However, she had been married at 15 and was relatively close in age to her older children and they simply couldn't wait for Catherine, William's mother, to die and she wasn't willing to sign over the farm given she had numerous children including William and his younger brother Thomas and sister Hannah still living at home. So it was one by one the older sons voluntarily left and William slowly moved closer to inheriting the farm. Indeed by the 1870s three older brothers had left. One had emigrated to the USA, another had joined the Christian Brothers, a religious order, while a third brother, John, although remaining in the area, was now running the family pub in Rock Mills. This left William at home with his mother and two younger siblings, Thomas and Hannah, and as he was now the eldest son, he was set to inherit the farm. In 1877, his mother, having reached the age of 60, finally decided the time had come to pass on the land to the next generation. However, this was a tricky process. She needed some financial security going forward. In what was a bleak indication of the tensions land caused, parents were often wary about putting total control of the farm in the hands of their children. They feared being thrown out of the house and potentially ending up in the workhouse. There was a solution, however. William was hoping to marry, and as was customary, his wife's dowry would be used to give his mother the money she wanted before she handed over the farm. William had set his sights on Mary Ann Brown, the daughter of a neighbouring farmer, and eventually a curious compromise was worked out. His mother Catherine, along with William's remaining siblings, Thomas and Hannah, would leave the family home altogether. Local rumour had it that they left to start a pub in the North Tipperary town of Nina. Their departure was abrupt and hinted at signs of acrimony, but this wasn't really surprising, given two younger siblings, and indeed his mother, had to leave the house they had grown up in. However, that said, Manny probably thought it was for the best. Could it really have worked out when William married Mary Ann Brown and she came to live in the house with William's mother and two siblings? It seemed like a recipe for disaster. Less than two weeks after the departure of his mother and two younger siblings, the final piece of the jigsaw fell into place when William married Mary Ann Brown. Finally for William, at the age of 32, life seemed to be falling into place, despite the odds he had inherited the family farm and in a society obsessed with land. This was one of the most important milestones he could achieve in life. He could now start to think about his own future and family and in 1878 he and Marianne had their first child, 
followed by a second two years later. However, his happiness was short-lived. After persisting against what seemed like impossible odds and inheriting the family farm, this was all jeopardised by much wider events within a few short years. While it wasn't quite as bad as the Great Famine, an economic tsunami hit Ireland in the late 1870s. Tensions over land and the violence that had always lurked beneath the surface in Irish society now surged again. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Irish history. In the decades after the Great Famine, Irish society had enjoyed peace and relative prosperity for two decades. Aside from a brief period in the early 1860s, the economy had slowly improved. However, this growth had faltered in the late 1870s when a global recession hit farmers in Ireland hard. Agricultural prices plummeted and credit was withdrawn, creating a major crisis, particularly in the West. Then, in early 1879, famine threatened amidst widespread crop failures. As they had in the great hunger of the 1840s, landlords moved to evict tenants who had fallen into arrears. However, William Sheehan's generation, who had watched their parents, neighbours and friends evicted as children, were determined this would not be repeated. They organised into a tenants' union of a kind, called the Land League, and fought evictions tooth and nail, leading to an intense conflict between landlords and tenants known as the Land War. The preferred tactic of the tenants in the 1880s was the boycott, campaigns of social ostracism against landlords or anyone who helped them, including those referred to as land grabbers. 
In many communities, these people were the most hated of all. They were the people who rented the farm of an evicted tenant. Peaceful as the boycott was, the threat of physical violence also always loomed in the background during the conflict. Threatening letters, intimidation and physical attacks increased dramatically. What were called agrarian outrages, violent crimes against people or property soared. They had numbered just 301 in 1878. However, by 1880 they exceeded 2,500 and in 1881 there were over 4,400 such crimes. Murders also increased. From just 8 in 1878, this increased to 22 land-related murders in 1881. In Carrick the land-related violence, which had a long history, inevitably found its way to the surface. The spark that ignited tensions in this community was actually William Sheehan himself, who after years of struggling fell into major rent arrears and was evicted by his landlord, Alicia Aldworth, in November 1882. Now for William Sheehan, this was a humiliating, shameful and embarrassing moment. It was not just that he'd lost the family farm, but this land was everything to him. He had watched his parents cling to the land during the Great Famine. He had battled against his siblings and emerged as an unlikely heir to the land. And after all that, he had lost it. He could not, and indeed did not, take this lying down, and neither were these neighbours in Carrigdenan. Firstly, William wrecked what had been the family home, making sure no one else could have it. Then the wider community initiated a boycott on the farm. The consequences of defying this were devastating. A boycotted person would struggle to find anyone to help them in any way, shape or form. Local labourers would not help them work the land. Local shops would not serve them, and in some areas boycotted people were hissed at when they met anyone along the roadside. In the background, the Franks case of 1823 also served as a reminder about the depths that this community would go to when it came to the issue of land. However, determined as they were, there was limitations to what a community could do in the 1880s. The landlord in question, Alicia Aldworth, lived 50 kilometres away on the far side of Cork City and she was largely impervious to a boycott by William Sheehan and his neighbours in Carrigdenan. However, in 1883, he and the wider community began to focus their growing anger and rage towards a woman called Joanna Power, who had committed what was a cardinal sin in rural Ireland in the 1880s. With little hope of getting a tenant, Alicia Aldworth's estate manager installed a woman called Joanna Power as caretaker on William Sheen's old farm to stop trespassers. In the eyes of her neighbours, Joanna was siding with the local landlord over her community. She was not quite a land grabber, but in the eyes of some at least, she was not much better. It seems most likely that poverty rather than greed had driven Joanna into this precarious course of action. She was a widow with at least three children, and may even have been a servant for the Sheens previous to their eviction. Whatever the case, few had sympathy for Joanna or her plight. Slowly but surely through 1883, she was the focus of growing anger and subjected initially to what might be called acts of passive aggression. One such act saw William Sheehan buy cattle at a fair in Fermoy and put them on the farm he had been evicted from. This was followed by the first direct threat against Joanna. William Sheehan and another man, Patrick Roach, another farmer in Carrigdenan, approached Joanna and told her to leave the farm. She refused. For some watching on, they undoubtedly began to wonder where all this would end up. There were rumours, idle talk about William Sheehan and what he was capable of. For Joanna, while poverty may have forced her to remain in the house, palpable fear now became a constant companion. 
She was living with three children in a labourer's cottage on what had been the Sheehan farm. She was an easy target and vulnerable. The presence of her children provided no protection. There were plenty of cases over the last century where vengeance over land had seen entire families massacred. It was only a matter of time, surely, before the tensions building would boil over into physical violence against Joanna. Each evening, as darkness enveloped the cabin, she took what limited precautions she could. She barred the door from the inside, but there was a certain degree of futility to this. The flimsy structure of the thatched cottage could only hold off an attack so long. Worse still, depending on the ferocity of the attack, it could be dangerous if the attackers set fire to the house. During what must have been sleepless nights and weeks, the murder of the Franks way back in 1823, which had happened just a few fields away, surely haunted Joanna. Then what she had long feared finally took place in the pitched black of night on May the 30th, 1883. The attack began around two o'clock in the morning, but not in the way she might have expected. There was no bang on the door, no screams or shouts calling on her to come outside. Instead, she was woken by a strange, unsettling sound of falling stones. What exactly happened next is unclear, but it seems whoever or whatever was outside was demolishing the small cabin around her. Remaining inside now was no longer an option. She rushed to the door and removing the bar she tried to leave, but now her blood ran cold. As she attempted to open the door it became apparent her attackers had somehow locked it from the outside. Fumbling in the darkness she somehow managed to open the door and escape the house, but emerging into the cold night air with an infant child in her arms a stone came flying through the air and struck not Joanna but instead her infant. However, as her child wailed through the darkness, Joanna was positively relieved because her attackers, or rather her attacker, had taken flight. She had survived. What was more, she could identify the person who had done this to her. It was William Sheehan himself. Understandably terrified William Sheehan might return that night, Joanna went to stay in a house in the locality and spent the night there. However, she was determined not to be intimidated and furthermore, she was adamant William Sheehan would be brought before the courts. She contacted the Royal Irish Constabulary and a local constable, William Dunney, took full details about how Joanna had been threatened, the attack that had taken place and how she was convinced she had seen William Sheehan fleeing the scene. This was strong evidence and events moved rapidly. William Sheehan was arrested and within a week he was brought before the local court. The atmosphere in the building that day was tense. As was common in tenants' rights cases, friends of the defendant attended in large numbers. While they were there to support William, they were also there to intimidate Joanna Power. When she took the stand to testify, she would do so in front of an entire community. They would all witness her convict William Sheehan. The magistrates hearing the case tried to mitigate against this and they called for the court to be cleared of everyone, save those involved and the press. The trial opened with Constable Dunny taking the stand and laying out what was a damning case against William Sheehan based on Joanna's testimony. He was followed by Joanna herself. However, on the stand she gave what can only be described as a startling testimony. She totally changed her story. She claimed that William Sheehan was in fact a close friend, that he had often helped her in her work as caretaker of the farm he had been evicted from and that she was confident he would not hurt a hair on her head. She went as far as to say that she no longer was even sure anyone had attacked the house on the night in question. According to the new version of events, the cabin had been damaged by cows while she herself had injured the infant by banging its head against the doorpost as she emerged from the house. 
After this, it was clear the case was going to collapse. Indeed, the police gave up and William Sheehan was released. What precisely had happened in the days before the hearing was unclear, but it's obvious the threats made against Joanna had become too much for her. Perhaps the fate of the Franks back in 1823 had been pointed out. One question, however, remained for Joanna. Given the clear depth of ill-feeling towards her, would the community be satisfied now that she hadn't testified against William Sheehan? Had she been absolved of the crime they thought she had committed? In the aftermath of the trial, life in Carrigdenan seemed to slowly return to normal. However, William Sheehan still faced major problems given he had lost the family farm. In the coming months, he, his wife Marianne and their children tried to find another farm in the locality to start over. He did successfully negotiate a lease in the neighbouring area of Shallon Valley Moor. However, this fell through after a dispute with the landlord. For Sheehan, this seems to have been the final straw. William and Marianne decided they needed a totally fresh start and given their difficulties in Carrigdenan, that their future now lay elsewhere. They still had some money left, so they decided they would cut their losses and emigrate to the furthest possible corner of the globe. While many in the community were sad to see him ultimately defeated in his battle with the landlords and have to leave the area, there were some in Carrigdenan who were, privately at least, probably happy to see him leave. Popular as William Sheehan had been, there were those in Carrigdenan who knew he had a dark secret. They had said nothing, but by the time he left the area, his dark secret was a stain on their community and all those who knew about it. Having left Europe nearly two months earlier, the shores of New Zealand appeared on the horizon on February the 4th, 1884, and William and Marianne Sheehan had completed what was an arduous journey of nearly 20,000 miles. Indeed, there was scarcely a longer voyage possible on Earth. Arriving in the port of Auckland, what was going to be their new home, was at times familiar and simultaneously strange. New Zealand was in part reminiscent of Ireland, but the volcanic landscape around Auckland was alien to them. Furthermore, in the Southern Hemisphere, seasons take place in reverse, so while they left Europe in midwinter, seven weeks later, they arrived in New Zealand as the summer was coming to an end. However, the accents of the 50,000 Irish-born colonists already living in the country were a frequent reminder of home, and it was here, in New Zealand, Mary Ann and William hoped to start anew. Farms were comparatively cheap, although they would of course be taking land that had been stolen from the native Maori people. On arriving in Auckland, William and Mary did not immediately set about buying their new farm. Instead, he found work north of Auckland, at Pakaraka, near the Bay of Islands. However, by August, the family had returned to Auckland. The reasons for this are unclear. However, it may have been precipitated by the fact that Mary Ann was pregnant again, and at some point in 1884, the couple had a third child. It was around this time as well that they decided to buy a farm at Waikoiti, which is now a suburb of Auckland. However, as had been the case back in Ireland in the late 1870s, their newfound happiness did not last long. However, on this occasion, it was all William's own doing. It may well have started out as a joke when someone showed him a newspaper article about a wanted man of the same name somewhere in New Zealand. However, when William read the article, he could scarcely have believed the words on the page in front of him. It read, It is reported that a detective would be dispatched to New Zealand for the purpose of arresting William Sheehan, a man who is suspected of murder at Castleton, a township in the borough of Rochdale, Lancashire. While people in New Zealand may have thought this was an entirely different person given the crime had been committed in England, William knew better. The location was surely just a mistake, a detail muddled along the way. 
because he knew while there was indeed a Castleton in Rochdale, England, it sounded awfully like Castletown Roach, the town he had grown up near back in Cork. More importantly though, while he might have travelled 20,000 miles from Ireland, he could not forget what he had done back in Carrigdonan. Somehow, some way, his brutal, violent crime had come to light back home and now the police were coming for him. Tune in to part two of A Land to Die For next week as William Sheehan's dark past catches up with him. Don't forget you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash irish podcast. Until next time, Sloan. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.